by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself. Feedback was my fault. I turned it on too soon. <laughs> I can sound very strong and powerful if I need to. Um, I'm glad to be here this morning. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for, for Jeff's loss and keep him in prayer through this week and the next few weeks as he, things will, will adjust to his life, will, will adjust. And, and it's difficult when you lose someone that close who's always been in your life. And for Pete and the family as they adjust and to a whole new world and to the church. You are in a little bit of a transitional phase. You know, we're always in transitional phases. We are, we are, you know. But sometimes it's just more highlighted and it's more in front of us. And so keep you in prayer over the next several weeks and months as, as God does a great work for you here. Well, we are in Romans 12. And this, this is, you know, ground that has been well plowed by preachers for centuries. But I wanted to really focus on this idea of a living sacrifice. And as we move that way, there we go, I want to focus on what Paul has to say to the church. And then I have an illustration I want to use that's a little bit different. I was asked, I'm preaching the end of the month at, at my home church down at Clackamas Park. And so I'd already begun thinking through this process when I got the call to preach here. So you get the first phase, and they're going to get the second phase. So that's always kind of an exciting thing to be able to do. But Paul begins writing to his Roman church saying, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's just stop there for a minute. Have you thought of that as worship? I mean, really, have you thought of that process as worship to present yourselves? We think worship quite often as what happens here. On Sunday morning. This is only one small piece of that because it's when we gather as a community and we put ourselves before God in this and lay ourselves out to Him as His gathered people, is this, that's part of that worship. However, worship is by definition to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's every day, every breath, every moment is a sacrifice to God. And that's our worship. That's the main part of worship. 
This is the very public expression as a communal group, but the main part of worship is how we interact on a day-to-day basis with God's great creation. And that is called what? Our proper and true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Boy, that's important. It's easy to get led down the other way because there's all kinds of support for it. Lots of commercials, lots of books, lots of magazines, lots of friendships and relationships that lead us away from where God would take us, away from that living sacrifice. But be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. It's a thought process at the beginning. It's important that we understand that what we stick into our heads is important, and how we stick it in is important. Is it just happenstance, or is it something that we focus on calling us? It is obviously to hear, and what it says, it's a focusing of your mind. Then you will be able... See, until you renew the truth of what God has for you, until you think upon those things, and I get to refer back to a couple weeks ago, because a lot of you were here then. What do you set your mind on? Where do you focus? What kind of things do you review for yourselves? That is what renews your mind. Where do you occupy your thought process? Then you'll be able to test and approve the will of God, his good pleasing and perfect will. And his perfect will for us in this case is to present ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice. How do we do that unless we know what his will is? And we know what his will is through prayer, through study, through relationship, and through stepping out and doing what he calls us to do. It's reinforced in that process. There we go. For by the grace given to me, and this is Paul talking. We're, we're 99 and 9 tenths sure Paul wrote this. Okay. Uh, there, you, there's a little, you had a little fudge there for the writer, uh, but Paul wrote this uh, from everything we can tell. For the grace given me, that is Paul, I, or the gift, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, Really consider who you are and what God's called you to be in accordance with the faith God has distributed to you. The faith you have doesn't come from you. The faith you have and that you exercise isn't your faith other than what's been given to you to exercise. So when you think you lack faith to carry forward, what's the source of your faith? God, how deep are his resources? Are they as deep as yours? Well, I hope so. I hope they're a lot deeper. I hope they're unbounded in the depth and the width and the breadth of what faith is. That's what you have to pull from. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to rely on your own resources. Gods are there for you. And as you're renewing your mind in that process of presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, your faith and your experience of that faith that God has given you grows deeper and deeper, and you're able to do what God calls you to do more for in the exercise of his perfect will in this world as his gathered people. Faith is given to each of us in the full measure that he has for us. There's nothing lacking. It's there. It's ready. That's exciting. We can go to the next one. Thank you. 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, great illustration. This, how, many, how, how often has this been preached to you guys? One body, many members. You know, and, it's, and it's mentioned by Paul in two or three locations in the writings that he makes. These members do not have all the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. The interconnectedness of us. We're holding together there. We have different gifts according to the grace God has given to each of us. One body, but many members. We all have different gifts. And I want to use uh, an example of that. I've heard football teams talked about, and I've heard baseball teams talked about, and they all have these different things. I'm going to talk about the sport I love. Now, I love football. And about 1.30, I'll be watching the Seahawks this afternoon. I, I don't apologize for that. I do enjoy it. Um, uh, nobody else in here, apparently, is doing that. <laughs> but, but football is not the same as it was 50 years ago. When I played in high school, rules were a lot different. Um, when I got to play on defense, I could do whatever I wanted with my hands. That guy lined up, that tackle lined up across from me, the first, my first move, I'm going to slap that guy in the side of the head. That's the first move. You do that now, it's 15 yards, and you're probably going to get tossed, which is a good thing, you know. You could hit a guy, as long as you didn't hit him in the back, anywhere on the field, any way you wanted to do it. You could horse collar running backs, grab the back of their, of their pads and throw them to the ground. You could, you could spear people with your helmet. You could take a running start and just launch and spear people with your helmet. You can't even do an inadvertent helmet-to-helmet hit today, which is a good thing because it's protecting people. Can you imagine the size and the speed of these gentlemen today if they could do what we used to be able to do? It would be disastrous. It would be taking us back to the early 1900s. you realize we used to kill 15 football players a year in this country? 15 a year because of the way the rules were. You could do a flying wedge which you can't do, which is a good thing. You know, things change that way. But when you look at track and field, which is my favorite, I love track and field. I really do. Because it's a lot of individuals doing individual tasks with a very different set of of gifts and skills at each area. You have your runners, your sprinters, your hurdlers. All three of those areas are different disciplines. Distance runners are different from sprinters. You know, it's a very different training process, very different use of the muscles and, and the thought processes and the preparation. They're all different. Pole vaulters are different than everybody else. They have speed and strength, both. I'm going to talk about one in, in just a couple minutes here that I, that I knew and was on my team in high school. And then um, shot putters, which is what I was, as you can tell by. I'm about like I was in high school. I'm a little more weight, I'm a little shorter, but I'm about the same size. But the shot putter's discipline is very different than the sprinter's discipline. You know, we, we run seven feet, about that far, to the tips of my fingers. About like this little area here. Seven feet is it. That's how big the ring is. The rules for track and field have not changed in over a century. Except in the pole vault, where they've gone from a rigid pole to a bendy pole. Well, folks my age can remember the transition in the early 60s. And there's a big debate whether to allow that bendy pole in. But the training is so different. 
when I was in high school, I played, I was at Pomona High School in Pomona, California, Southern California. And our track team, we used to play almost all dual meets just with another school. We'd, we'd match up and go each week in the spring. And we went six consecutive years without a dual meet loss as a team. Six years. Unbelievable. Dr. Green was our coach, and he went on to coach at a couple colleges after that. He made a point to talk to us shot putters and discus throwers because we were off in another field. We were over there. Nobody ever saw us. Nobody ever paid much attention to us. But he made a point. to He called us in an hour early so that he could coach us because he was so busy with the others after that. So we got, a, we got out of class in fifth period to come and do track. And he would spend time with us in training and refining what we did in that process. But what was interesting is we had a guy named Bob Seagren. Everybody, anybody ever heard of Bob Seagren? He was the Olympic champion in 1968 in pole vault. When I was there, he was a senior and I was a freshman. And we had middle school through ninth grade. And so we would, I was not in the same school as him, but we were on the same team because our freshmen would come over and compete when the dual meets were held. Because a lot of schools were four-year high schools. We were a three-year high school. And Bob was the shiny toy. Every meet you'd go to, there were reporters there to talk to him. There were coaches from other institutions to watch him and how our coach worked with him. There were reporters from the local, the national, and at times the international press filming this guy. He's in high school. He's 17, almost 18 years old. He's only 21 and he wins the Olympic gold medal. You know? He was the shiny, bright object that everybody was focused on and everybody was excited about. And they should have been because he was the 10th-ranked pole vaulter in the United States. Not in high school, in the United States. As a senior in high school. He jumped almost 17 feet in 1966. This is a while ago, you know. He still holds the school record. The guy in my class that when I graduated, Bob Sprung, got within an inch of him at a little over 16 feet. High school boys, unbelievable. But they were the shiny, bright object that everybody paid attention to because they were out front and they were doing spectacular things. And it was really neat. But the wonderful thing about track and field, it's a team sport, ultimately. But it's segmented into each area. You see, what I knew and what our coach said, understand, Bob is going to get the attention. This is what he told us. You guys are over there. Nobody's going to come over there. Nobody's showing up to see you. But you are critical to this team winning meets because you score and win, and you have the same points as Bob. You get five points if you win, three if you're in second, one if you're in third. In the year that I became competitive on varsity, which was my sophomore year because I couldn't compete as a freshman, they didn't allow that, I outscored Bob every meet. I would score five to ten points every meet. So at the end of the year, I had almost twice the points that he added to the team total. But nobody knew that but the coach and the other players other athletes on the different disciplines. But my contribution to the team was far greater. We get to that in this reading. The less spectacular, let's move on.
If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do diligently. Boy, this is critical. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. How you go about doing your calling is critical. How you go about achieving what God has called you to do is critical. Leadership takes work. It takes real work to be a leader God's called you to do. You have to think about it, process it, and administrate it in a way that is positive to go forward. You've got to lead in that manner. Mercy. I have, I have received a great deal of mercy and generosity over my lifetime. Some of it has been so wonderful, and other parts of it have been, eh, you poor dear, I'm so sorry for you. And that's okay. But how encouraging does that become when, man, you're going through a tough time. Come on, let's go together. We're going to go face this. I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry you, you, you did that. But we can move forward from this. Let's go. You know, you have a new opportunity today. Don't stop with that. Don't let that hold you back. It may make it more difficult. You may have to go a slightly different direction because of what's happened. But come along. We're going to go to the next step. Come on, let's go to the next step. We can do that. You guys are ready for a next step. You know, anytime you change any kind of leadership, you're on for a next step. You're on for a new experience. You're on for things to change. Change is exciting. Change is doggone scary. You know? It's it's not the kind of thing you really always want to do. I don't. I don't particularly care for it. The most important thing for me in in my last 10 years was was breaking my right ankle in such a way that I'm permanently disabled with it. It it, it never healed. It, It, in fact, almost lost my foot in the third surgery on it, but all of a sudden I had to stop and slow down. I had to really take a hard look at my life and understand where it is God wanted me to exercise the gift I have in teaching and in leading within a church as a pastor. And three years later, I retired, and there are some parts of me that regret that so much. I wish I were still actively working in a church at the level that I was because I still have the same level of energy and insight and love for God's people. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to do. But it's important to understand that when you lead, you have to focus all your energies into it. And when you have mercy, all your mercy into it. If you're going to encourage, boy, do it. Don't hold back. And don't be selective in who you encourage. See, that's the hard part is being selective in what we do in mission and ministry, isn't it? Well, I kind of like them. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to go sit over there with them. Made it a rule after my third year in ministry back in the 70s. I never, when I went to conferences, sat with people I went with. I never did that. I always wanted to experience other folks and see what they were doing, see how they're reacting going forward, seeing what they're doing, seeing what's important to them broadening my perspective and my horizons of what's there, to go and visit with other people. Nothing bothers me more than to go to, 
uh, conferences, and everybody from their little church, oh, we're all together for this meal. We're all together. We never separate out and go see people. We never go visit folks. One of the things my wife does real well is mix you people up when you go to a conference or meeting. You will not sit with your folks consistently. You'll have some times, but you're going to be with other people. You're going to get to know them. You're going to spread the connections of the church. You're going to experience what it means to be a greater body and individual parts within that body and how important each one of you is to that process. The whole body has to be going forward. You know, Paul tells us in another another part of Scripture, not everybody's an eyeball. What a great term. Can't you just see the irony of that? Can't you just see him up front delivering that and looking at you going, you're an eyeball? What good is that without a head? What good is that without feet to take you to go see someplace? What good is that without a brain to process the eyeball and the images that it sees? What good is that? It's of no good at all, other than it's an eyeball. That's what he's telling us here. Nothing is <coughs> more important than the other. In another section of Scripture, Paul tells us that which seems least important more seemly is the most important part of the body. Of processes you can't see. It's the shot putters. You don't see us. But what we learned also in track and field was that inside that seven-foot ring, it has been this way for 120 years, that seven-foot ring has existed. You have to enter it the same way that you've entered it since 1900. You enter through the back. You Then what you perform within that ring is open to whatever it is you want to do in innovation and style. I've seen the style of throwing change four times. Originally, you just stood at the front and threw. Then you turned sideways and kind of leaned down and threw. And then you went to the back of the ring and went sideways and moved across it quickly and threw. And then you turned around and moved backwards one step and threw. And now they do like a double circle like a discus thrower, and throw. It's all allowed because incorporated when the bounds of what the rules are, and they haven't changed, unlike football. Football's changed. Those rules are not, they can't even get it right from one half to the other on enforcing what the rules are. But in track and field, in every event, it's clear. If you leave the blocks too early, it's a foul. If you knock the bar down when you high jump or pole vault, it's a foul. When you step over the line when you long jump or triple jump, it's a foul. You don't get to count it. When you shot put and step up on top of or transect the top of the front of the circle, it's a foul. You don't get to score the point. Those rules have not changed. Our rules have not changed. What happens within that circle changes. I've been here for a few services. And the music has been different each service for worship. And it's all been worshipful and God-fearing and wonderful. But it's been different because it happens within the perspective of honoring God. It's within the seven-foot ring of the shot putter. And what happens within that ring when you are paying attention to the bounds that God has established for you, which is to bring glory and honor to him, as a gathered church in worship. Now, we have our preferences, don't we? Each one of us has our preferences. I didn't do hymns in worship at first. 
They didn't exist in the early, in the Episcopal Episcopal Church I was in. You didn't sing congregational hymns. It was a high church, and it was mass. You could not differentiate that between that and a Catholic mass at the time, except that it was in English and not Latin. Now you couldn't differentiate because the mass is in English now for the Catholic Church. But you could, but there was no music. The church that God found me in, a little place called Life Bible Fellowship in Cucamonga, California, at Hoots and Sons Chicken Farm. It was just us and a half a million layers. And I'll tell you, on an August morning, you knew you were on a chicken farm. There was no missing the reality of what was going on around you. But it was honoring to God, and we sang all old choruses. That's all we sang. Didn't sing hymns. Not until we went to Kansas that we sung hymns again. And I learned to appreciate the depth of the theology, the depth of the teaching contained in the traditional hymns that you miss in a lot of today's music. But there is a joy and an excitement that I get out of today's music that is missing from many of those older hymns. It's the fact that you can do both in a service, I think, is wonderful. You don't throw one out for the other. God expresses through so many different paths and ways. We are each unique in our gift. We're called to enrich that gift. We're called to train for that, to think on those things that are right and pure and honorable and righteous. Focus on those, and the depth of your gift will grow and grow. And then we are exhorted to exercise it. If you're called to prophesy, prophesy. If you're called to teach, teach. You know, if you're called to serve, serve. It doesn't matter if you get accolades for doing it or getting thank yous for doing it. You're not called to do it for thanks and accolades. It's nice to get them. Don't get me wrong. And those of us who aren't exercising that gift should be grateful and thankful to those who are exercising a different gift than theirs and encourage those who are there. One of the things we learned at this high school, especially among the the shot putters and discus guys, is that those coming up relied on us to coach them because our coach wasn't there for them through most of the day. He was there for the varsity shot putters and discus throwers. He didn't have time. There weren't enough people. So these young guys that were coming up, we had to begin to work with them. Remember Eldon Henderson, dear friend of mine, ended up being in my wedding, in fact. Eldon was six foot 11 in 10th grade. He weighed 275 pounds, and he was not fat. He was just a big guy. When he first threw the shot put, he threw about 35 feet. That's a little 12-pound ball in high school. By the end of that year, he was a year younger than I was, he was at 64 feet because he learned and practiced and listened and applied. Quite a deal. But that's what happens in our faith as well when we have our gift. When we take time to listen to others, to learn, to apply, it increases. And all of that goes in to feed the church, to feed the community, to feed the hope that we have. Each one of us is called to that, to be both giver and receiver. 
in that process and to understand it's more than just you and I. The preacher talks a lot. They should. A pastor visits a lot. They should. But they should visit because they're one of the members of the body. Each member of the body should be involved in the process of lifting one another up. The elders of a church need to be deeply involved in that process. And not just telling folks what they ought to do, but doing and taking with them, pulling them along. The role of leadership is important. You pull people along. You bring them where you're going. You do what you're doing. Get them to begin to experience that, especially when you begin to notice and see those who have the potential God wants them to use, that you encourage, you pull them along, whatever that, whatever that gift is, and you get them involved, whether they've been here a day or a month. Judy and I planted the church up in Kent, Washington, back in, back in 81, and um, excuse me, in 88. We'd, we'd laid down the Kent Friends Church work, and we opened up East Hill. And we used a the phones for you campaign. I would recommend you never get involved with that. 25,000 phone calls over 10 weeks. 2,500 phone calls a week. Nearly 200, over 200 a day. And you gather a crowd. You don't gather a church. You gather a crowd. And we had about 175 people show up the first day. Can you imagine that? Just cold calling these folks. Well, you couldn't do that today because over half the people in the country don't have landlines. You can't get access to the phone numbers. So that campaign will no longer work. However, we do get a lot of stuff on our cell phones now, so, as I've experienced. But what happened that second Sunday, we had about 60 people, which was the normal fall-off. There was nobody there to help. The churches that had helped us were all back at their church after that opening Sunday. Myself, my wife, and our two teenage daughters. And our kindergartner, she wasn't much help. Cute, but not much help. So as people came in, the first guy came in, I recognized he'd been there the week before, and I got to know him a little bit and said, John, would you mind doing coffee? He had a job. Al, would you help get the cars parked? Thanks. Jenny, would you help in the nursery this morning? Just for a little while today. People were involved. And those people that we talked to that first morning were the ones that stayed with the church consistently for years, because they had worth and meaning, and we knew that they had things that they needed to do. Involve folks right away. Do not wait to see, hmm, are they the right spiritual makeup? I'm not saying you go crazy with putting people in areas of responsibility that are deep and set, but begin to integrate people immediately. You're going through some change. You're going to have some new people peek their whole eyeballs at you. Find a way to integrate them into the flow and the life of the church. There are folks you're going to visit with every Sunday over there. Same folks every Sunday. Within your own church, begin to go to different tables. Confuse things. I can now tell you where everybody sits. Of about, about 25 of you, I know where you sit now. You've been there for five years. Am I wrong on that? Yeah. And there's some folks who get upset when they don't have their seat. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that, that's a reality. Dorothy Henshaw, wonderful lady in Kansas, she, she'd been in that, she'd been, she was in the third row, right next to where Mill sits, on the edge, 
for 75 years, she sat there. We had a young couple come in and sit in her spot. Dorothy came in and just did this. Didn't say a word, just stood there and stared, and they, they finally moved. And um, I, I'm not telling any tales here, am I? <laughs> okay, so begin to be aware of these things we do as people. Okay, how do we make folks feel welcome and warm to be among us? We don't have to be their age. We don't have to be, you know, anything like them, but do they sense that we're welcome and glad they're here? And we want them here. And we want them part of us. Are we that kind of open reality? Understand, a lot of the time, it's not going to do anything for them. But that's not the deal. The deal is about you doing what God calls you to do. That's not the reaction they have, because that's up to God. There's your foot stuff and eyeball stuff. We already talked about that. Going on to the last. We are interdependent and complete only when we're connected. We are interdependent. We don't function in any other way, just like our body. Understand who the church is. Keep that in front of you. Remember, Peter talked about in the teaching for a few weeks ago, set your mind upon that. Practice that. Be reminded on a consistent basis of who you are as the church. Understand the church lives in community (coughs) as a body. It has to. It doesn't exist. If it's not living in community, it's not a church. It's not a church. It's not a place where God has gathered people all. Each member is gifted. Each of us is gifted. When we come into faith, God gives us these things. And we're called to use that gifting. These gifts are different. And we have to work in community together. In a close, if you will, biological knitting of the spirits of one another and those gifts. And the church has left the building as we go out, as we do the kinds of things God's called us to do. It's out there. We build up in here, so we're effective out there. Our community builds here, so it's effective out there. Why else are we here? Why else are we here? We are what God has chosen to be his conduit of hope and grace. We're it. We're plan A, we're plan B, and we're plan C, and we're the alternative backup. We're it. That's exciting. A little scary. I know me, and I know a lot of people, but God uses us in ways we don't always understand. So as you go today, keep that in mind. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, I just love coming to this church. I love the time spent with these wonderful people. Father, you have great things in store for Vancouver first. And I know your hand is upon them right now. They're going through a time of transition, Lord, and I ask you to be with them. Give them that special extra measure of grace and hope. Give the new pastor who's coming in, uh, if on an interim or permanent basis, everything he needs to have. And especially be with Pete and his family, Lord 
as they make new adjustments in their lives too. We thank you and praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.